Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotah betivanu, la'asok bedivrei Torah. Veharevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka vefinu ufi amka b'tisrael. Venie anaknu vedzaetzaenu vedzaetzae amka b'tisrael. Kulanu yodea shemeka velomde Torateka lishma. Baruch atah Adonai hamlamed Torah le'amo Yisrael. Baruch Hashem Adonai, may it be soon in our days that we see the one who is blessed when he comes in the name of Adonai. And yes, I am referring to Mashiach Yeshua. So, without further ado, back into our Agarit to the Romans. So, I finished off a long time ago, probably weeks ago at this point, uh, in chapter 2, and I want to go ahead and read the end of chapter 2 and come right into chapter 3. So we will see how many verses we can read today. All right, Hashem. So the verse 29 in chapter 2 of the Agarit to Rome, and again, Agarit means letter. It says, the true Yehudi, which is the word for Jew, is actual technical word, Yehudi, so the true Yehudi is so in Hashem's hidden way. And true Brit Milah is of the Lev, which is the heart. So true circumcision is of the heart. And the true Yehudi, the true Jew, is the one who is in the hidden way of Hashem. Interesting, because the hidden way is revealed in Mashiach, but we shall continue. It goes on to say, in the heat cut shoot, which is renewal of the Ruach HaKodesh, see Yochanan 3.3. All right, so let's go ahead and drop in Yochanan 3.3, which says, Amen, well, Yeshua answered, what was the question? Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. We know that you, a teacher, have come from God, for no one can perform these signs which you do unless God is with him. So now this is obviously lots of background information, but this person who is speaking to Mashiach Yeshua at this point, his name is Naktimon. He is actually codified in Talmud as a commentator with Jewish literature. And he is pointing out that he considers Mashiach Yeshua a rabbi, which in that time period, during the time period of the Tanaim, which are the teachers and the repeaters. So this was about 10 uh, CE to 220 CE. So during this time frame, and Mashiach Yeshua actually lived during that time. Still lives today, so there's that. But when Hashem caused Mashiach Yeshua to be born of a young maiden and to grow up in wisdom and stature and to ultimately be offered for the sins of the world as an Akeda, a bound and marked one uh, during the, the Pesach, uh, as our Pesach lamb and simultaneously as our Yom Kippur atonement goat. So 
during that time frame was all happening during the time period known as the Tanaic period. So the Midrash Tankuma, if you've ever heard of that, that was birthed during this time frame. So that's like one of the oldest of the Midrashim that you can read. So if you have the Midrash Tankuma, you're closing in on the time period of Mashiach Yeshua walking among us on the earth in the form and likeness of mankind. So there's that. So when we look at this, I bring all this out to say that Yeshua is considered a Pharisee because he's called a rabbi. And during that time, if you called someone a rabbi, that means that they were actively engaged in teaching in the land of Yisrael. Outside the land at that time, they would be considered Rav. So the Talmud Bavli, which comes from Babylon, uh, not Babylon as we know from like Nebuchadnezzar and like all that time period, but like later after the destruction of the temple, a group of people got together there and they composed the Babylonian Talmud. And in Jerusalem, they also composed the Yerushalayim Talmud. So all of this to say that the backdrop here is Mashiach is being called a Pharisee, a rabbi, a sage, someone who is super highly respected by the progenitors and the repeaters of Jewish literature. So Mashiach Yeshua is within that context, within that framework and is considered to be like, you know, totally on board, totally in line with everything, not outside of the box, not in a different faith. No Christian ever questioned Mashiach. No Christian ever engaged in dialogue with Mashiach. And no Christian was ever a part of his 12 Talmudim. Christianity would not come around for at least another few hundred years. We're looking around the 300s, maybe even roots before that. But you have this whole picture here that Mashiach is teaching. He's uh, ministering. He's gathering in divine sparks from the context of Jewishness, Judaism, Hebrewism. Israelitism, whatever you want to call it. It's all from that context. So Torah, mitzvot, shomer, observance, hashgaka, which is the word for observance. That's what Mashiach Yeshua is taught from, and that's what he's connected to. So therefore, those who follow Mashiach, surprise, that is the hidden way of Hashem. It's called Torah. So there's that. But anyway, if you happen to uh, be able to connect with mysarshalom.com, please log on to that website, download the official halakha, and start on page 24, and you'll have a wonderful time of learning about who is a Jew and what's it all about. And actually, some of these passages from the letter to the Romans will be in there. So that way you can get a better grasp on where does Mashiach Yeshua come from. 
and what is the context within him teaching and speaking and who are the people who are actually following him and the people he's reaching out to what they actually become. Anyone who gets immersed or anyone who professes faith or anyone who gets circumcised with all those prerequisites of being immersed and professing faith or whether they get circumcised because they profess their faith and then they get immersed later, all those things, becoming a new uh, babe, a newborn babe, becoming born again, that's all connected to Torah, Judaism, being a Jew, being in the hidden way of Hashem, and being spiritually renewed from the inner side, the inner man. So the one new man that we're talking about is Hashem taking Jews and non-Jews and converting them, making them to be born again in the likeness of Mashiach Yeshua to conform to the pattern of his image, which we will also see later in this letter. And that image and that pattern is a pattern of Torah and mitzvot. Now, it's not your salvation that is Torah and mitzvot, but after your deliverance, because salvation means to be delivered or saved from evil, from darkness, from peril, from destruction, which is what lawlessness is before knowing Messiah, before knowing Torah, before being in covenant with Hashem. All of those things are a package deal, by the way. We were trapped in our own desires, our own animalistic urges and drives. And that is what separated us from Hashem because rather than listening to Hashem, having the ability to listen to Hashem and comprehend what he's saying, we did not have that, and so we were considered dead, like a corpse. So, there you have it. So, if you are going to say that Messiah is your Lord, he's your king, you're his disciple, you're part of God's chosen people, you're a believer, you follow the word of God, you know, you're no longer under the law, if you're that kind of person, Yes, that's right. I did not make him. I did not make a mistake. I did mean to say, if you consider yourself not under the law, as is written here in this letter later, then that makes you a Jew. Because Jews, by the way, are not under the law. We are one with it, and we've taken it upon ourselves as a yoke, not as a burden, but as a joy. This all takes us back to the story of Esther uh, and the uh, understanding of the account of Purim. What happens at the end of that account is that all the Jews and even some of the people from the nation of Persia and surrounding nations, those who have visited Persia and who've been a part of the Persian culture, even some of those people came into the Jewish faith. So everyone re-accepted the Torah upon themselves. And this is where commentaries say that we were no longer under the law, but we are now in the spirit of the law because no one forced us to. We willingly took it upon ourselves and with joy, we observe it and we manifest it on the earth. 
So anyway, so that's the whole thing about not being under the law. It's not the same way that happened at Mount Sinai, where God picked up the mountain and hovered it over the whole nation and said, hey, here's this Torah. If you accept it, then good. If you don't accept it, then here is where you will be buried. I will bury you underneath this mountain. And people were like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll do it. And Hashem's like, great. Instead of this being your death, this is now be our marriage day. So it's kind of like a shotgun wedding, but with a giant mountain. So there you go. So it's just kind of like, so now there could be a case that, no, we accepted the Torah under duress. We were forced to do it. It was a shotgun wedding. And it's like, well, actually, that's not true because later the whole nation and even people from the world, people from the nations, like the fullness of the Gentiles, Almost because had the fullness of the Gentiles come in, we would have experienced the final redemption. So we're still waiting for those of you who are still Gentiles. Come on in. What you wait now? But anyway, but back during the, the Esther time frame is when the Jews and the nations reaccepted the Torah upon themselves. And it was not under any kind of force or obligation. So if that's you. You align yourself here with the Messiah. So back to Yochanan's writings, chapter three. So Mashiach was questioned by Nachtimon, a.k.a. known as Nicodemus. Yeshua answers, this is verse three, to connect us back to the Agarit to Rome, chapter two, verse 29. And it says, Amen, Amen, I tell you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By the way, which is born again, born from above and born again are the same thing. And there's this concept that there is a heavenly Jerusalem and a earthly Jerusalem, a heavenly temple and an earthly temple, which the earthly temple currently is destroyed, may it be rebuilt speedily in our days. So we have to be born from up there. And the only way to be born from up there is through the waters of the mikvah, through the word of God. So you have to be born of the word, which is Mashiach. And then you have to be immersed in the waters of a mikvah and you say the bracha and welcome to the family. So unless that happens to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So anyway, so that's what a Yehudi is. That is what a person who has a circumcision of the heart is. And so it goes on to say in chapter two, verse 29, back to the letter, it says that in the renewal of, okay, so in the he cut shoot of the Ruach HaKodesh, okay, so now Shaul is connecting being born again, being born from above, being born of the Jerusalem above. That's all about being born of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God, which is, as he points out next, not in Humrah, legalism, strict adherence to the letter of the law. Okay, so it's by the Ruach HaKodesh, not in Humrah or Humrah, which is all about being super strict. So being stringent. Being like, do this or else on like the the highest level, you can push that. Now, this is not to say 
Okay, what if we come across uh, a commandment in Torah, it's like, oh, we're not really, I mean, we don't have to really be strict about it. It's not that. It's like saying, listen, unless you're regenerated by the Ruach HaKodesh, okay, focus on that. Once you're regenerated by the Ruach HaKodesh, then the commandments will be like a, a fresh breeze of cool air. Like you ever been on the beach on the in the where it's like that that cool breeze brushes in off the ocean, you get that fragrant aroma smell, okay? Like that's what the Torah becomes. Okay, so it's focusing not on a humanistic way of observing the Torah, like I'm gonna try to do this, I'm gonna try to do that, I'm not I'm gonna try to do this, I'm gonna try to do that. It's more of a by the power of God's spirit within me that overflows me with joy and causes me to want to know who Hashem is, causes me to want to fulfill his will, his pleasure, his desire. I do this. So kashrut, so eating kosher, kashrut becomes like a joy. It becomes like, man, this is who I am now, you know, as opposed to Man, I'm really trying not to eat pork. I'm really trying to make sure that my meat is not strangled and there's a kosher hexer on everything. It's like, no, I'm super excited to have the opportunity to do this. And it's a mindset. You have to have a renewal of your mind. Interesting how your mind and your heart and the Ruach HaKodesh have this kind of correlation to one another. Well, in Jewish thought, the Lev is what your words are. So your heart is connected to your words. It's also connected to your brain. Whatever's in your heart is going to come up in your thoughts and it's going to come out of your mouth. This is why Yeshua says it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. Our defilement in a spiritual and in a physical form is only through the inside of us. So you have to change your heart. And by I say you have to change or we have to change, it's actually Hashem that's going to change it. But we have to be receptive to that. And the new heart that we have is a heart of Torah. Did you know that the first letter of Torah is a letter Bet? And the last letter of the Torah is the letter Lamed? If you put those two letters together and flip them around to make it Lamed Bet, it actually spells the word Lev. So the Torah is the heart that we need to replace our stony heart. So the heart of flesh, which is the flesh of Mashiach Yeshua, the flesh of the Torah, the flesh of the Lev, the Lev flesh, the heart flesh, the the heart of flesh, all of that, that is what we need to play, remove, or that's what we need to have in place of the removed stony heart. So in other words, what I'm saying, Messiah Yeshua being the good news of redemption, he's like, listen, here's the new heart. Here's the heart of flesh. It is one who is humble. One is one who is obedient, one who is filled with the spirit of God, which are words of Torah, because every time Mashiach spoke, he spoke words of Torah. So that is what we need to have. 
The stony heart is one that says, no, I think I'd rather, or no, I feel like I need to do this. And no, I want to do this right now. And man, I'm having all these lusts. I'm having all these cravings. I'm having all these desires. So therefore, I will act upon them, even if it's in contrary, or even if it's in uh, contradiction to what the Bible says. Even if it's in contradiction to what Messiah says. Even if it's in contradiction to what Shaul, a.k.a. Paul, says. Because lots of times, people with a stony heart, they hang their flag and they plant their flag, or they hang their hat on and plant their flag on Paul. However, if they do things like say, hey, you should get married, say, uh, you know, hey, you should say grace before you eat you know, or believe in angels. They contradict themselves and they go against the writings of Paul because Paul, Shaul, is all about Torah, all about Jewish thought. Everything that Shaul says is based off of what he has read and what he has studied. So, That's just something to think about. And yes, I do say people who believe that they should get married or people who believe in marriage and all of that kind of stuff. How do you contradict Paul? Well, see Corinthians chapter seven, because Paul totally says that you should not get married. Yep, that's what he says. He really goes for, hey, don't worry about it. Just try to get try to stay single, try to stay focused on the word of God and the kingdom and all that. You know, but if you have a burning, you should get married, you know, like. So it's like, okay, what are you saying? So, like, do we get married or don't we get married? You know, when clearly the word of God teaches us about marriage. So you just kind of have to think about this for a moment, because the stony heart is very, very deceptive. It's desperately wicked. It wants to do what it wants to do. And we just let it drive us if we're not careful. But yet, if we remove the stony heart by the help and the power of Hashem, and we receive the new heart, now we have something to channel our lust, channel our desires. Because the Torah teaches us how to live, teaches us how to desire, teaches us how to fulfill cravings and manners that are glorifying unto God. And just to go all the way there to a super awkward place, because, you know, our culture and our society is super sexual uh, today. Uh, Lots of sexual temptations, sexual immorality uh, steeped in all of that. um, Just, you know, hair commercials and uh, lots of skin being shown, lots of, you know, all sorts of movies and everything, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's, it's all out there. You're just kind of like, I can't believe that's allowed to be viewed in a public setting. And it's just like, yep, that's what it is. So with that being the case, just taking that extreme example, the Torah teaches us how to channel our sex drives, our sexuality, and ways that actually bring glory to God simultaneously granting us supernatural fulfillment. So 
just say law on that for a moment, even though it's kind of like, why do we have to go so extreme? But I'm telling you, the, the heart of flesh, which is the heart of Torah, the heart of Messiah, the spirit of God. That's what I'm talking about. It's it's something completely just beyond this world. It's outside of our own understanding. So anyway, just to connect that to Proverbs chapter three, lean not on our own understanding. All right. So that's the first part of verse twenty nine. The rest of verse 29 says in chapter two of the letter to the Romans, the one so marked, the one so marked has hoda'ah, praise, which actually comes from the word Yehuda. See Bereshit 29.35. What does Bereshit 29.35 say? Because in order to understand what Hoda'ah is, or a Hoda'ah, it says, Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, This time I praise Adonai. For this reason, she named him Yehuda. Then she stopped having children. So the very word for thanksgiving comes from the word for praise and also comes uh, to form the word Yehuda, which is the divine name of Hashem with one letter additional added into the middle. And that letter is the letter Dalit, which is the letter that stands for the door, which is representative of Messiah, who is represented by the number four, because the number Dalit or the letter Dalit is, has the gematria, the numerical value of four. And what four do we have other than the four salvations that Hashem promises us in the Sefer, the book of Shemot, Exodus chapter six, where he says in verse six, therefore say to B'nai Yisrael, I am Adonai, count it, number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Four, I will take you to myself as a people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. There are, these are what's called the four salvations. So salvation comes in four parts and salvation is known as a process. It has to do with being brought out from your current oppression, your current position of slavery, i.e. for freedom, Mashiach has set us free. So you come out from being away from the law of God, away from not being in covenant with God to now being brought into covenant, brought into relationship with God, brought into covenant, brought into the law of God. Now you're brought in. Right. And then it says, I will deliver you from their bondage. So all the chains and all the ties, the, the familiar spirits and everything, they get broken off, destroyed, which happens through the sanctification process, which is the fulfillment of the commandments of the Torah, which is uh, pictured in what's called the splitting of the Yamsuf, commonly known as the Red Sea. 
So when the Red Sea split, the children of Israel went across on dry land. The Egyptians tried to follow and the waters closed up and flooded and drowned the Egyptians. This is what's called the sanctification process of us following the commandments. This is why when we do many of the commandments, we say, blessed are you, Adonai, God, king of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments. The commandments are that process of flooding and drowning out your enemies. The more commandments you do, the more drowning and flooding happen to your uh, your chains to your oppressors, to your afflictions of like, I want to break the law of God. I want to be apart from God. I want to do my own thing. The more commandments you do, the further away you get from those things and those get broken off. Even the familiar spirits and the, I just don't know why I do this. I just, I just have to. So I did it. And you know, this is just what I love. Like those things get broken. Like Bacon cheeseburgers, like pornography, like uh, anger and abuse and uh, foul language. All these things get flooded and drowned out from having a new heart, being obedient to the commandments and so on and so forth. One commandment leads you to another commandment. So if you just start with one thing, which I would suggest starting with observing the Shabbat, Like devote your whole Friday night at sundown through your Saturday night at nightfall. Devote that time to God every week. No questions asked. The only thing that should pull you out of Shabbat is you personally dying. And I know that's a steep thing because it's just like, what if we have family members who pass away? Or what if we have, um, you know, people who want to get married? What if accidents happen? Well, at those moments, you know, it takes obviously the discernment of how to do that. But I'm talking your basic things like uh, don't go to work. Don't uh, go to the store, go shopping. Don't go out to restaurants, uh, things like that. Devote that time to Hashem. Anything that will help you observe the Shabbat, do it. Whether that's hanging out with people who are studying hanging out with people who are praying, hanging out with people who are serving at the synagogue and things of that nature. Anything that you can do to bring life. So if you have a person who's sick in the hospital and you can bring them a meal that you've already prepared before time and you can you get that opportunity to deliver it to them, then, you know, doing things like that even and and sharing some of the, the prayers and the passages of the portion to read on the Shabbat, you know, from the Torah portion, you know, so start with that and you'll be surprised at what you can branch out into. You can branch out into if you're a man wearing tzitzit and a kippah, if you're a woman wearing a head covering and dressing modestly, covering up, you know, all your your stuff, okay, that you don't need to be putting on display for people and so on and so forth. Uh, eating kosher, you know, you'll start to learn hexures, which are the little markings that identify what is suit or food that is suitable and fit for consumption. Uh, you'll learn about not mixing meat and dairy and all these kinds of things. And as these things come up, you'll be able to appropriately step into them like crawling to walking. Okay. 
there will be lots of mistakes. There will be lots of errors and mess ups. And oh my goodness, I didn't know that. And how come no one told me there will be lots of that. But because you're filled and overflowing with the spirit of God and doing everything in joy, when those moments happen, a joyful person continues and be and they say, oh, well, bless be Hashem. That's something I didn't know. Now I know. And now I can prepare and do better. That's what joy looks like. Joy doesn't look like I can't believe no one told me this. I'm out. You know, that doesn't look like that. Okay. So if you have been doing something, I've been doing this the whole time and I'm so embarrassed and I can't believe it's like, whoa, 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 stop. Turn the engine off. What what's the goal here? The goal is sanctification. Sanctification is what's called a process, which means it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time for you to figure out, my goodness, I just had ice cream and I wanted my cheeseburger. And then I was like, wait, I ate the ice cream and I wanted my cheeseburger. Why didn't I think of this? And it's like, okay, so you're going to have, you know, those moments. And, uh, you know, I should have been prepared my food uh, so that I can have food for Shabbat, but I haven't cooked on Shabbat. Man, time just got away from me this week. Well, you'll learn time management. Okay. So it's a, it's a humble process and it takes you again, flooding out your enemies, breaking off those chains and saying, you know what? I am determined to be obedient to my God and do things that please him. And I'll tell you, there's no greater joy for a father than to see his children walking in the truth. So the fact that you're desiring to walk in the truth, that right there should let you know how Hashem is pleased with you, even if you make a mistake. Because making a mistake and doing something on purpose are two totally different things. And you don't plan mistakes, but you do plan disobedience. You do plan uh, errors and doing things on purpose. It takes planning for that. And that's where the, uh, the line should be drawn. So again, the next part, the third part of our salvation over here, it says, I will redeem you. Okay. So I'm going to like, I'm going to make it so that you're no longer in a position uh, of disability and uh, inability to uphold the word of God. I'm going to like make that now possibility. I'm going to empower you, grant you the potential, grant you the, the chutzpah, if you will, the oomph to get it done. Okay. And then it says, I will take you to myself. And this is where you and Hashem become one. So his thoughts become your thoughts. His ways become your ways. Now, obviously, there's a line because we're not gods or anything like that. But we can strive to know him and strive to uh, perfect ourselves and excellence. So we can begin to adopt the concepts, the ways that Hashem uh thinks and and does which is through the torah so again you'll become acquainted with how is interpretation happen you know how to really look at the scripture how um, the sages think 
and how that all fits together with, you know, helping us be obedient and subject to the word of God and things like that. You know, a Jewish mindset, you know, when you're going through difficulties and hard times and things that are unexpected happen that take you off course, you begin to say, Baruch Hashem, this too is for good. Okay, that's a part of that's what I'm talking about. Things like that. As opposed to just flying off the handle, going, I can't believe this has happened to me. God, why do you hate me so much? Like, not that kind of stuff. But this is really, really, really tough right now. You know, like my wife and I, we went through a miscarriage and we're still suffering the effects months later. And it comes up at the most weirdest times. And it's kind of like, Baruch Hashem, you know, you have to gather yourself. You have to, that pain, that uh, sadness and that mourning is very intense and powerful. But you grab a hold of it and you bring it to Hashem and you say, Gamzu Tova, this too is for good. Hashem, I don't understand, but I know that you, you have caused this to happen to us, that this has already been filtered through your heavenly courts, filtered through your perfect will for my life, for my wife's life, for our family, for our household, for the community in which we're in. You filtered it through all of that and you caused it to be made manifest. And so therefore, we praise you for your goodness, even in the midst of such intense, and trust me, I'm not saying this lightly, intense, grievous, heart-wrenching pain. So that's the kind of things that begin to happen when you become one with Hashem. That takes you beyond a heart of stone. That takes you beyond a humanistic, a fleshly mindset. All right, so four salvations, the Dalit, the door, which is equivalent to four, the Dalit, the letter Dalit, Hebrew letter, uh, which represents the Messiah, which is why Messiah is called salvation. The four salvations are one salvation, by the way, and they're represented by the four cups that we drink at the Pesach Seder. And um, this is all about what a true Jew and a true circumcised person of the heart is. So everybody can be circumcised with their heart and everybody can become a Jew. That's the the Baruch Hashem from that. So. To finish out this verse, it says the one so marked has Hoda'ah, which is praise, Yehuda, Hoda, praise. Okay, we just read it, Bereshit, Genesis 29, 35. And it says that comes not from B'nai Adam, which is mankind, but from Hashem. Okay, so your Jewishness. Your spiritual renewal and regeneration by the Ruach HaKodesh is not something that's going to be discernible by mankind, but only by Hashem. So therefore, no one can appropriately tell you whether or not you're Jewish and whether or not you're circumcised. Even if you physically, as a man, because women can't physically get circumcised, um, as a man, if you get circumcised, it's like, yeah, cause you're circumcised. You got circumcised. You're circumcised. It's like, that's not exactly true. Unless your physical circumcision is a reflection of your spiritual circumcision. 
Because did you know that there are people who are circumcised who bow down to idols? Okay, which goes against being a believer. It is uh, the opposite of being in covenant with Hashem. It literally is adultery in its finest form. Because if you say, oh, I'm circumcised, I love Hashem, I'm Jewish. But yet you're a person who's wrapped up in yoga and Eastern mysticism and all sorts of other religious uh, affiliations of non-Torahness, non-Jewishness, all that other stuff. If you're a part of that, then congratulations, you've undone your circumcision, even though you're physically circumcised. Just saying. That is a thing. It's just kind of like you can't you can't walk around saying I'm a man of integrity, but yet you go rob banks and you haven't been caught yet. I mean, what kind of sense does that make? You're you're telling me you're a good role model. You you're full of integrity, but yet on the side and in secret, because in order for you to be walking around in, in freedom, that means you hadn't got caught yet. And notice I say yet, because there is no way for you to rob banks your whole entire life and never, ever get caught. You will slip at some point. So don't rob banks is, I guess, the takeaway from that. But seriously, that's what it's like if you're saying, yeah, I'm a true Jew. Yeah, I'm circumcised. But yet here you are robbing banks. It's like, what? Do you, what is this? So Jews rob banks now. Circumcised people who are circumcised of the heart who are hidden in the way of God, regenerated by the spirit of Hashem. We're bank robbers. We murder people. Like, is that what we do? Now we can make teshuva, you know, and, and turn away from that and be brought back in. But unless that happens, I'm sorry, <laughs> you've already chosen your, your path. You know, your, uh, your intent is different from the direction Okay, you may intend to be a true Jew, but if you're committing all these crimes, then sorry, your direction is not Jewish. All right. And I know there's a lot of semantics when we talk about Jewish, because it's kind of like, well, who considers who Jewish? And again, if you just read this verse, only Hashem can say who Jews are, which is the beautiful thing about Matthew 28 where Yeshua tells us, go out into all the world and make disciples of the nations. Literally, bring the nations into Torah observance. Because in order to be a disciple, what are you following? What do the disciples of Messiah follow? They follow Messiah. Who does Messiah follow? Hashem. What does Hashem follow? Himself, His Word, His thoughts, Torah, Judaism. Like in its purest form, Abraham style, not Judaism of so-and-so rabbi down the street who lives in an Arab and who's a part of whatever sect. OK, a lot of people practice Judaism today, but, you know, there are different gradients and variations of it. And no one particular sect has it all together because. Again, we don't have a Sanhedrin. We don't have a temple. If we had a sect of Judaism that had it all together, then guess what? We'd have a Sanhedrin. We'd have a temple. It would be the Olam Haba, and all of us would be back home in our land, shining light to the four corners of the world. Now, 
that's not the case. Uh, one day may it be so. So until then, the best one could do is be a person of repentance and be a person of faith filled obedience to God. Putting those two things together is what's called a true Jew and a truly circumcised person. All right, we're finally into chapter three, 43 minutes later. Okay, <laughs> verse one, it says, what then is the advantage of the Yehudi? Or what is the value of the Brit Milah? Notice how it's connecting Jew to circumcision. Like it's like a Jew and the circumcision. Wow, a Jew and a circumcision. <laughs> Jew and circumcision go together like uh, cookies and cream. They go together like uh, yogurt and granola. They go together like um, black fire on white fire. They go together like husband and wife. You know, like it's just these two things are connected. Because, again, even if you can't physically get circumcised, which, by the way, the Torah does have uh, proscriptions for that because, you know, different medical things, different uh, life threatening things that happen uh, if you have a history of that in your family. Not every circumcision is life threatening and not every circumcision is medically dangerous. But there are some cases that they are. And Torah actually has uh, pre prescriptions for that. And furthermore, you, Bezrat Hashem, have a rabbi that you can go to, and he can walk you through the fine details of all of that. But anyway, so just so you know, being Jewish and being circumcised, like that goes together. So if you're a person who circumcises the heart, you're Jewish. If you're a person that's Jewish, you're circumcised of the heart, which if you're a guy will lead to you being circumcised of the flesh, if that's suitable. Because, again, just like I said, medically life threatening, there are some cases where circumcision is not. OK, so but only you and your rabbi will be able to work through that and figure that out. So so that's the first thing. So the question is, what's the advantage? OK, because not everybody has to do this. You don't have to be Jewish if you don't want to. You don't have to be circumcised if you don't want to. You can keep your stony heart and just keep doing your thing. You can uh, don't tell your heart your achy, breaky heart and uh, drink and chew and go with girls that do. You can do that. So that's what this question is bringing up. It's like, so so what's the advantage then, you know, if I want to be Jewish and circumcised like and all that? Like, what's the advantage? Because because if not, I can just keep my package deal that I'm in now and I can just live, quote unquote, my best life and live it up now. Side note, if that's you, uh, this is all you get because the world to come is going to be pretty. Uh, it's going to be pretty interesting for you uh, if you have not invested anything for eternity and you just spent your whole life thinking this is all I have. This is all I want. I want nothing else. It's like, well, you will uh, get what you're asking for. And you will also get what you're living for. However, you should know that you will be rewarded for your good deeds. That's not a consolation. That's just a fact. Uh, because sometimes people make it so black and white. Like, yeah, so, you know, if you don't love God and stuff, you're going to die and go to hell. 
It's like, well, that's not exactly true. There's all sorts of stuff that uh, need to play into that statement. But we're not talking about that right now because this is not the podcast for that. But we can uh, if we really want to. However, the point, my point, is that there are uh, rewards and there are punishments. There are purifications that are going to happen to our souls uh, in time to come and in the world that comes after this one. So when our spirit and our flesh separates from one another, i.e. when we die, that's when that'll all begin and take off. So just know if you've been helping old ladies cross the streets, uh, feeding the poor, uh, going out to help heal the sick and doing all sorts of charitable things like that, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, under the category of good deeds, if you've been doing that stuff, Hashem is going to reward you. And I believe we talked about that uh, in chapter two, where I believe, what is it, 13 or 14? Where was it? Yeah, it's in there uh, that we've talked about it. According to your works. Oh, there it is. Verse six. Who will render to each according to his works. So you will be rewarded according to your works. That works vice versa. If you're a worker of iniquity, which is a worker of not Torah, then uh, you'll be rewarded for that, or you'll be uh, basically uh, billed for that. The bill is coming, okay? Just keep moving, and Hashem will bill you. He'll bill all of us. So we have to be uh, cognizant of that, that if we're going to be a worker of lawlessness, that's going to be interesting. Okay, moving on, it says, so the answer to this question, Shaul answers his own question because he's good like that. He says, what's the advantage? Much in every way. For koidem kol. Okay, so for in the first place, they are entrusted with the divrei Hashem, the oracles and the words of God. Bezrat Hashem, I can make it past this little phrase here because this is just kind of like, this is the ultimate, this is the, the epic. So this thing called the oral Torah. So I'm really just going to take some time on this because Beyond the oral Torah, you have the culture, the lifestyle, the language, which are all tied together because the language uh, brings you into the culture and the lifestyle and all that. So there's that. So if you want to be a person who learns Hebrew, eventually you'll get connected to uh, Jewish etiquette and uh, all of the ins and outs of what a Jew is just through the language. So get you some of that. But I just want to say that only Jews have been entrusted with the oracles, the words of God, the clarity, the things that will transform you, take you beyond uh, this reality into depths that you just you'll just lose your ever loving mind. <clears throat> only Jews have that. And I mean, not the. The uh, Adam Sandler type Jews or 
Hollywood Jews, but I'm talking like seriously observant covenant followers. <coughs> Sleeka, got something in my throat there. So, with this being the case, I just want to take some time on this. So, I'm going to end this segment and pick back up, and we're going to talk about these oracles, these words of Hashem, and what's the significance of those things. All right, so the Torah, the Divrei Hashem, the oracles, all of that goodness that only the Jews have, which is the advantage of being a Yehudi and being circumcised. So, I want to start with the Midrash Rabbah because I was going to start with Rabbi Tonka Truck, a.k.a. Rabbi Trugman, <clears throat> but uh, he, in his introduction, was already going into the Midrash Rabbah. So I was like, you know what? Let me just pull out that section of the Midrash Rabbah. And then it's like, oh, well, this is ridiculous. So uh, if I don't get to get to him, if you have what's called the Orchard of Delights, literally start on page 25 and just go. This is what the advantage of being a Jew is. So in the Midrash Rabbah, he started in 1315. And so I went to 1315 and pages earlier than that is the verse that they comment on, which is Numbers chapter 7, 18 through 23. And it's talking about the offering of. On the second day of the 12 days that the 12 tribes offered um, everything for the inauguration of the what's called the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the second day of the of that is, as it says here in these verses, on the second day, Nathaniel, son of Zuar, offered the leader of Yisachar. He brought his offering, one silver bowl, its weight, 130 shekels, and one silver basin of 70 shekels in the sacred shekel. Both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil for a meal offering, one gold ladle of 10 shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one sheep in its first year for a burnt offering one he goat for a sin offering and for a feast offering or for a feast peace offering. Okay. So one he goat for a sin offering and for a feast peace offering. And then it says two cattle, five rams, five he goats, five sheep in their first year. This is the offering of Nathaniel son of Zuar. Now, I'm just going to go off the top of my head on a really big guess that was probably super expensive. So for those of us who think paying a 10 percent tie to a shim is something, just think about the uh, the Nasi, the leader of the tribe here of Yisachar. And for that fact, the other 11, because they all brought the same thing. Anyway, so that's the verse. So. This is why being a Jew is so legit, because from that verse come pages. Let me say again, pages of commentary and midrash. We're talking 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. We got six verses on the table 
and we're going to go for pages. So I'm just going to hop in in the middle here. One of the things that I love, uh, this is 1315 of the Midrash Rabbah of Bami Bar, which has the section of Parsha Naso. So if you have a Midrash Rabbah, I am beginning on 1315 through 16. Uh, the page in the top right corner says 24, uh, two, 24 to the power of two. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let me just read. First thing I'm going to say down in the right column towards the bottom, it says that this corresponds to the Torah, which is compared to wine as it is stated and drink of the wine that I mixed. Proverbs 9, 5. Since it is customary to drink wine in a Mizrach, as it states, who drink wine out of Mizreke, Amos 6, 6. Therefore, Nathaniel brought a basin, which is a Mizrach, corresponding to the Torah, which is compared to wine. Footnote says the Mizrach brought by Nathaniel is reminiscent of the vessel by the same name in which wine is drunk, thus alluding to the Torah, which is compared to wine. The overt aspects of the Torah, i.e. its commandments, the very obvious parts of Torah, are compared to bread. Goodness. So Yeshua says, I'm the bread, right? Which is a euphemism for Torah. Man shall also not live on bread alone. Just the commandments, right? So... Again, the very obvious aspects of Torah, it's like, that's called bread. And it says, and its esoteric aspects are compared to wine that gladdens the heart. So now if we're going to look at the Torah being wine, we're going to go beyond the stories, the accounts that are in the Torah. We're going to go beyond the commandments. Yes, that's right. Beyond the letter of the law. Now you're going to get into drinking wine. Selah. It goes on to say Nathaniel's offering of a bowl corresponding to bread and a basin corresponding to wine alluded to both of these indicates or alternatively the Zohar indicates that the written Torah is compared to bread. The oral Torah is compared to wine. The Proverbs verse thus alludes to both the written and oral Torahs. Get you some of that. And this is what I love about going back to the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both trees are mixed. This is why some say the tree of knowledge of good and evil was, you know, uh, wine or bread or apple or fig or pomegranate or grape. It's, it's a bunch of conglomeration of things. Well, what is the tree of life? It's the Ruach HaKodesh. It's the Torah of Hashem. It's the spirit of God. It is the new mind. It is the new man. It is resurrection. It is the power of God to redeem a soul. You know, like, so both trees have a lot going on. Anyway, so this next statement, it says, why did the basin weigh? Because it says 70 shekels and the sacred shekel. That's the weight. It weighed 70 shekels. It says, why? For just as a numerical value of wine 
So if you spell out the word wine, Yod Yod Nun, which is the word Yain in Hebrew, the gematria of that word is 70. And it says, so are there 70 approaches to the Torah. Footnote, one reason the Torah is compared to wine is that it can be understood according to 70 different approaches corresponding to the numerical value of wine. Since the basin was intended to allude to this particular metaphor for Torah, its weight was 70 shekels. Next thing I saw that I was like, oh my gosh, I flipped the page and in the right hand column it says, because the words of the written Torah and the oral Torah were given, were all given from one shepherd. As it states in Ecclesiastes 12, 11, the words of the wise are coming from one shepherd. That was the footnote. Continuing back in the top here, it says, that is all of them, all the words of the written Torah and the oral Torah. It says all of them were stated to Moshe by the one God, say one God from Sinai. So therefore, if you're a person who believes in, that there's a Old Testament, a New Testament, you now think that there are two gods, which would mean that you don't view the Torah as something valid because that's a previous God who he was one. But now the new God is not because the new God uh, looks a lot like making up stuff on my own and figuring out how I should live for God. That's really what it boils down to. And people are confused whether they should convert what to being Jewish or whether they should be observing the Torah and things like that, that comes from that mentality because the mentality of new Testament and old Testament are rooted in the idea that there are two different gods. Yet we read in the Midrash right here that the Torah is one, but there's a written aspect and an oral aspect and they come from one shepherd, which came from one God. Anyway, extra information. I flip the page again and uh, I go down here. There, I mean, there's so much on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to, I got to move forward. Okay. So it says on the bottom of the page it says the Midrash presents an alternative approach as to how the 613 commandments are included in the 10 commandments that were written on the tablets. Okay. Flip the page. It says. Another interpretation of filled with incense, which is melea ketorit. Okay, so that's ridiculous, first of all. Um, but we're going to keep going. It says, it is to allude that between each commandment of the Ten Commandments, there were written on the tablets all the passages and details of the Torah. So read in, in between the lines, basically. And then it says, uh, there were written all the details. Then it says, this is in accordance with that which Hananiah or Hananiah, Hananiah, Slika, the son of Rabbi Yehoshua's brother said, when scripture states, his arms or hands are rods of gold. Song of Songs 514. 
These are an allusion to the two tablets of the covenant, which are the work of God's hands, as it is written of them, inscribed by the finger of God, Exodus 31, 18. The verse refers to the to them as rods, which is gelile of gold, which may be interpreted as waves, which is gale. Same word, but just the root of it. And so rods can also be waves, which are the arms, the hands of God, the two tablets. So the two tablets are two arms or it's also two waves. Okay, and then it says just before, just as with waves, there are multiple small waves between one large wave and another large wave. So, too, between each commandment of the Ten Commandments were written all the passages and details of the Torah. Okay. Then I flip the page again, and in the top left column, it says, The two cattle, which is Bakar, correspond to the two Torahs. Which, by the way, if you take Bakar, rearrange it to Karov or Kerev, you actually get the word for Korban, sacrifice, which is to draw near, based off the root, based off the root word Korev, Karav. So your cattle is also the uh, idea of drawing near. So the two cattle can also be seen as the two drawing nears. What are the two ways to draw near to Hashem? Basically. So the two cattle correspond to the two Torahs. There are two ways to draw near to Hashem. Through the scripture, i.e. the written Torah. And the Mishnah, i.e. the oral Torah. For whoever examines, which is mevaker, which is using the word bakar, just add a mem in the front. Now the word uh, bakar, which is the word for cattle, which can be rearranged to karev or karov, which means to draw near, can also be read as Mevaker, which means to examine. So to draw near, to examine, to make yourself a living sacrifice, it says, for whoever examines and slaughters his evil inclination, that's right, his own selfish desires, his own evil heart, his stony heart, whoever slaughters that, i.e. making yourself a living sacrifice, renewing your mind, Again, this is chapter 12 of the letter to the Romans, verse 1. Okay, in order to do everything that is written in the written and oral Torah. This is why Shaul says you have to make yourself as a living sacrifice. And then he follows that up with, by the renewal of your mind, be not conformed to the pattern of this world. Okay, that whole thing, because you have to draw near to Hashem, through the written and the oral Torah and slaughter your own evil inclination. The footnote on that says, i.e., he carefully searches out his evil inclination and subdues it. Everybody say subdue. Subdue your evil inclination. That moment where you go, man, I just want to, you know, and it's contrary to Torah. Subdue it. That moment where you go, yeah, I know God said, but... 
Think about subduing it. Subdue that. Okay. So subdue. Okay. And it says, and uh, you do everything that is in the written and oral Torah. It says, creates two pieces. Now you create peace, which is shalom. You create shalom above and shalom below. Like, Ose Shalom Bim Romav, Hu Yaase Shalom Aleinu. Like, may there be he who makes peace in his heights, may he make peace up on us. I.e., peace that is above, bring down that peace that is below. The way to do that is through the written and the oral Torah as we slaughter our own evil inclination, subduing our own selfish desires, i.e., removing the stony heart and taking up on ourselves the heart of flesh. Notice that uh, your heart, you have two hearts. You have a good inclination and you have a negative or evil inclination. So those two things form your heart, by the way. So that's further commentary in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And I don't have time for that, but it's all connected to what's called the greatest commandment, the Shema, which is hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources, all that. Okay, anyway, there's a whole drop on that commentary about the two hearts. So the footnote on peace above and peace below says that Nathaniel brought two cattle as peace offerings to indicate that two pieces would result from examining, which is mevaker, one's evil inclination, and observing the two Torahs. The peace above means that he silences the voice, the voices of the angels that would prosecute him before God. Hence, since all or since the angels all now argue in his favor, there is peace among them. There is also peace below as the righteousness and benevolence of one who follows Torah, one who follows the the Torah way leads to peace between him and his fellow and the desire to discover the truth in his Torah study leads to peace between him and his fellow Torah scholars. So I'm going to read the next footnote. I don't know. Oh, it's connected to this. Let me just read the verse and then the footnote it says, as it is stated, if Israel would grasp my stronghold, then he would make shalom for me. Shalom would he make for me. Isaiah 27, 5. Yes, that's right. Yes, Yahu. There you go. Footnote says, if Yisrael will grasp God's stronghold. What is God's stronghold? It says God's stronghold, the chazak of God, if you will, is the Torah Concerning which it is stated in uh, Psalms 29, 11, Hashem will give strength to his nation. See the note above in Bami Bar Rabbah 12, 12. Don't have time for that, but in case extra study, go ahead. Bami Bar Rabbah 12, 12, and that's an extra get you some. And it says it will create a double peace for God. Peace above and peace below, as implied by the verses, repetition of the phrase. Okay. And uh, it just keeps going about this written in the oral Torah. 
So that's that. That's from the Rabbah, Midrash Rabbah. Thank you, Rabbi Tonka Truck. Just ran over everybody right there. Okay, so here's the introduction finally from the Orchards of the Lights. It says, our sages teach that the Torah has 70 faces. They liken the Torah to a crystal whose color and radiance alter the slightest change of position. Uh, we just read the Bami Bar Rabbah 1315 because that's what he cites. And he says, Otiot de Rabbi Akiva, the letters of Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva comments on the letters of the Torah, like the Hebrew letters. And it says, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, the great 16th century Safed Kabbalist, also known as Arizal, posits that the Torah possesses six hundred thousand faces this corresponds to the tradition that there are six hundred thousand soul root sparks in the nation of israel as well as six hundred thousand letters in the torah that's from shir hashirim rabbah song of songs rabbah 615 it says both these rabbinic traditions convey the same message both of these rabbinic traditions convey the same message about the multiple ways that not only the Torah, but reality itself can be understood. In the 20th century, quantum physics, in the 20th century, quantum physics, likewise, recognize the impossibility of establishing one objective reality. Physicists explained that the role played by the human observer makes it impossible to quantify reality precisely as it is constantly changing. So again, here's the advantage of being a Jew. Here's the advantage of being circumcised of the heart. You have the ability to look at the constantly changing reality beyond the impossibility of quantifying the preciseness of reality. So what we observe, basically, not being uh, the quantified precise reality, because it's always changing, the Torah is going to help you navigate this. It's also going to help you delve into... Uh, what we're now finding out in the science realm of objective reality, you know, and, and quantum physics and all of that craziness. So this is why looking at the same Torah over and over again, reading the same verse over and over again, you're always going to get something new. That's called being advantageous, which is what a Jew is, what one who is circumcised is. So that's the advantage of being a Jew. The other advantage is that we're the only ones apart from the nations of the world that are set apart, i.e. we're the ones who are consecrated to God, called holy. We're the prized possession. The beautiful thing about that is that is not bragging rights. That's actually uh, inspiration for not only us to go out and help the world become treasured and prized possessions of Hashem, but to let the world know that if you currently aren't Jewish, if you currently are not in covenant with God and you want to be, you can. You enter in 
through repentance, returning to the ways of Torah, and you uh, get converted, you know, get into a synagogue community, get a rabbi, you know, and follow the lead, okay? Because everything is built off of itself. You know, uh, I could bring up, you know, the beginning of Pirkei Avot that talks about the chain of Torah, starting from Moshe all the way up until the rabbis of today. Like, so everybody is following the one who's in front of them. Our rabbis are following the sages who are following the prophets, who are following the elders, who are following Yehoshua, which is Joshua, who are fo- who is following Moshe, who is following Hashem. So like that's the chain you're getting involved in. Now, you have to use discretion and figure out which rabbi you're going to subject yourself to. And you choose that rabbi and you don't go spread yourself thin and go, oh, this guy's my rabbi, this guy's my rabbi, this guy's my rabbi. Because that's actually what happens when many people log into uh, different uh, Torah teachings and I go, oh, yeah, I listened to rabbi so-and-so this week. And then I right after that, I listened to another rabbi so-and-so and then I listened to another rabbi so-and-so. And then I go to shul with my rabbi and then I listen to his teachings sometimes. Like if you get into that predicament, you might want to just stop what you're doing. And I say this with lots of humility because trust me, I do not know it all. Trust me that I don't know. Right. Okay. Anyway, but uh, yeah, you need to have one rabbi. Okay. That you follow. And that rabbi should, if you're, especially if you're a follower of Mashiach, that one rabbi should be a follower of Mashiach. So by default, If you're following your rabbi that you've subjected yourself to, you would be following Mashiach, who is the only rabbi. So if that's not the case, and if that bridge link is out, then get a better bridge, okay? Because the day you follow a rabbi who doesn't follow Mashiach, you've now divorced yourself from Mashiach. But if you follow a rabbi who follows Mashiach, there you go. If that's not comforting enough, what does Paul even say? He tells the Corinthians, Follow me as I follow Mashiach, i.e. he was a rabbi to the Corinthians. So today we also have to have a rabbi because who's going to help us, uh, you know, learn all of these copious amounts of things that I just read from the Rabbah about the 70 interpretations, then the the whole thing about the ever changing constant uh, reality and all that kind of stuff. So anyway. That's one thing. All right. So there's a gentleman named Shavile Pincus who back in the year of 5778, which is uh, two years ago, it's 5780 now. Um, but he wrote uh, a commentary on the Torah portion of Shemot, the first Torah portion in the book of Exodus. He brings this down on page five. And it says, it appears that we can explain the reason for the Egyptians' intense opposition to the Torah Shebe'al Pei, which is commonly called the written Torah, or the oral Torah, Slika. Pei is mouth. So Torah Shebe'al, Torah of the mouth. So this is where the rub comes in because Egyptians, non-Jews, current exile today, which we're in the exile of Edom, which is Rome, Christianity, Esau, all of that. All of those things are synonymous. 
they have a problem with the oral Torah. This is why uh, if you've been raised up in church, you don't want to hear that Jewish stuff. You don't want to know the oral Torah. Maybe you were a blessed and uh, fortunate soul that did grow up in a church that was like, yeah, study the oral Torah. Yeah, do the Jewish stuff. If that's you, wow, I'm jealous. But most of us who grew up in church, we don't want none of that oral Torah stuff. The rabbis, the Talmud, Chasve Shalom, the Zohar. Like, whoa, that's too much. Anyway, just know that's the type and the pattern that we follow or we fit into. So hence why we should probably break out of that. Because why? Check this out. It says, we have learned in the Gemara, Gitin 60b. HaKadosh Baruch Hashem, only entered into a covenant with Yisrael on account of the oral law. As it is stated in Shemot 34, 27, for according to these words, have I entered a covenant with you and with Yisrael. The reason for this can be explained based off of a pasuk, a verse, in Parsha Kedoshim, the Torah portion of Kedoshim, Vayikra Leviticus 20, verse 26, and I have separated you from among the nations to be mine. Separated from among the nations. So out of all the people who exist in the world, those who are in covenant with me, I've separated you out from all those people and you are mine. Selah. Because God loves everybody. And just like us as people, especially those of us who are in a relationship, I want to bring this point home that if you're a man who's married to a woman, woman who's married to a man, you love everybody. But you don't love everybody like you love your spouse. That's the picture. If you loved everybody like you loved your spouse, I'm pretty sure your spouse is going to have some problems. Because you ain't going to go do covenant stuff with other people that you love that are not your spouse and not have any backlash from your spouse. Same thing goes with Hashem. Hashem's like, you're my people. So you should be doing only what my people do. Therefore, if you're doing other stuff that my people don't do, you're saying that you don't want to be with me. I mean, come on, women. If that was your husband, he's like, oh, I love this woman over here. You're like, okay, if you love her, go be with her, right? I just wanted to have my little sassy voice for a moment. Yeah, if you love her so much, go be with her then, boy, right? Same thing with Hashem. Like, what are we thinking? There is something different. No, it's the same thing. Anyway, Rashi comments, if you are separated from them, then you're mine. But if not, then you belong to Nebuchadnezzar and his colleagues. Trust me, Nebuchadnezzar was not something pretty. I mean, he did eventually repent and Bezrat Hashem, he converted and became Jewish. But think about when he first rolled up on the scene. That's what we're talking about. He was so far from a Jew that it didn't make no sense. It says, now we learn from the Midrash Shemot Rabbah 47.1. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe Rabbeinu, I am giving them the written law in writing. 
the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Agada, I am giving them orally. So that if idolaters come and enslave them, they will remain separate from them. Thus, we learn that in the merit of studying the Torah Shebeal Pei, Yisrael separate themselves from the other nations of the world. It is now evident why HaKadosh Baruch Hu entered into a covenant with Yisrael on account of Torah Shebaal Pei, for in its merit, Yisrael are separate from the other nations, making them worthy of being in covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, fulfilling the promise. There is a verse here, and uh, it's from an earlier thing, but I didn't copy that down. But anyway, there's a promise that is being fulfilled when that happens. It says, thus, we can appreciate why the Egyptians were so vehemently opposed to the Torah. You ever meet people who are vehemently opposed to the oral Torah, the rabbis, the Talmud? Guess what? Those are the Egyptians. Those are the non-Jews. Those are the idolaters. So they're self-identifying. Chasve Shalom that it's us who are vehemently against the Torah, Shebeal Pei, because now we're identifying with being not Jewish, not in covenant with God. Because, by the way, the only way for you to have faith in the Messiah is to have faith in the oral Torah, because the only place that teaches us about faith in the Messiah even to look for a Messiah, believe in him, know about him, comes from the oral Torah. The written Torah talks nothing about the Messiah. The word Messiah is used in context of the anointing oil that was placed upon the head of the high priest. That's where the word Mashiach, which is Messiah, that word comes from. Other than that, there's nothing about a savior who you should put your faith in and follow after him. He connects you to God and all that kind of stuff. That comes from the old Torah. The Torah Shebeal Pei. So, with all that being said, that's our advantage of being a Yehudi. Let's see how far we can go from here. So, Baruch Hashem, we've made it through chapter 3, verse 1. Or, uh verse two. All right. So now goes on in verse three. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? If some have disbelieved, has their lack of Amuna annulled the faithfulness and trustworthy and reliability of Hashem? Chas Shalom. Let God be true and every man be a liar. Tehillim 116.11. So before I go to that Tehillim, which is Psalm, what I want to point out is that Shaul is saying, okay, but what about the people who have been Jewish or they say they're Jewish and they say they're circumcised and all that kind of stuff and they are set right with God and all that, but yet uh, they disbelieve, they lack amuna, like they don't fulfill commandments. They don't, you know, walk his uh, trees with good fruit and all that good stuff. It's like, does that, uh, does that annul Hashem? Like, is Hashem not faithful then? Like, can Hashem not uphold his promise? And he says, Chasve Shalom, let God be true and every man be a liar. Okay, so the thing is with that, I mean, is it Hashem who's broken 
or is it the person who's broken? Is it us? Because the moment that we fly off the path, we forsake Torah, we forsake Yeshua, we not filled by the Holy Spirit. The moment that happens, that's not on God. That's on us because God is faithful. He's like, if as much as you'll come to me, I'll fill you up. I'll hook you up. As much as I love holla, as much as I love pancakes and as much as I love gummy bears, if I had an unending supply of those things, boy, let me tell you, if you wanted any of that, I would be just so happy to just freely load you up. That's how Hashem is with Torah, with his faithfulness, with forgiveness, with covenant, with love and all that. He's like, if you'll keep coming to me, I'll give it to you. That's why Yeshua said, follow me. He didn't say, all right, get your act together. And then when that happens, then come with me. He said, no, follow me. Because as long as you keep following, I'm going to hook you up. As long as you keep following me, you're going to become less and less of a, a messed up, broken, diseased, vile, filthy person who hates God. Like if you if you follow me, you're going to grow in your love. You're going to grow in your righteousness. You're going to grow in your shalom. You're going to grow in your uh, joy. You're going to grow in your awesomeness of being a, a decent human. You're going to grow in these things just because you keep coming to Hashem and getting hooked up. And yeah, I said you keep coming to Hashem because when you follow Mashiach, that means coming to Hashem. Because that's how close him and Hashem are. He did say, I and my father are one. But anyway, this Tehillim, 116 over here, 116 verse 11. Let's see what we got. I'm over here in the Shomer Blue version of Tehillim from Art Scroll. It says, I said in my haste, all mankind is deceitful. Rashi based off of Midrash Shoker Tov to Tehillim 18, Psalm 18, comments that this bitter comment refers to the incident at the Selah Hamakloket, which is called the Rock of Division. See 1 Samuel 23, 19 through 29. In which the treacherous people of Zeph revealed David's hiding place to King Shaul. King Shaul, King Saul. Shaul's army then encircled the mountain, leaving no avenue to escape. In his despair, David demanded of Hashem, What happened to the promise you made to me when the prophet Shamuel? Samuel anointed me king. If I am slain now, I will never ascend to the throne. Suddenly God sent an angel who called Shaul away from the pursuit, saying, Hurry away, for the Philistines have spread out to attack the land. Thus David was saved. So the whole thing about deceitfulness and all that, like he's just saying, okay, so the people have turned their backs on me. They betrayed me. So this is what happens with people who are supposed to be faithful followers of Hashem. We end up betraying Hashem like Judas betrayed Yeshua. Uh, when we become people who are disobedient and no longer faithful. And it's like, well, if that's the case, then every man, let them be a liar. But God is not. God is going to be true. And he is true. 
Okay, and then it goes on in verse four. It says, even as it is written, Lema'an titzdak be davreka, which is in order that you might be vindicated when you speak and shall overcome when you judge. Tehillim 51, six. So let's go there. Tehillim 51, six. Actually getting through quite more than I suspected. So I'm uh, really grateful to Hashem for that. Commentary on that verse says. Uh, and faultless when you judge. Okay, so let's see here. Six. Some commentaries or some uh, verses verse four. Against you alone did I sin, and that which was evil in your eyes uh, did I do. Therefore, you are justified. There it is. You are justified when you speak and faultless when you judge. If you have a Tanakh or if you're reading from the art scroll Tehillim, it will be verse six. If not, it is verse four. That's how different Bibles versus Jewish sources are. Like non-Jewish Bibles, like your NIVs and your KJVs, your NASs and all that. Okay, so he says, you are justified when you speak, faultless when you judge. Okay, so he says, picking up here, forgive me so that when you judge and punish the wicked who refuse to repent, they won't be able to protest. What good would our repentance be for you have punished us? This is Rashi, Radak, and Sephorno commenting that. Why is he saying this? Because he says at the beginning of this verse, against you alone did I sin, which is as David said to Natan, I have sinned to Hashem, 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, for I violated the spirit of the law thereby creating a climate of disregard for God's mitzvot. See 2 Shemuel 12, 4 and Rashi. Let me repeat that phrase. I violated the spirit of the law, thereby creating a climate of disregard for God's mitzvot. So if we're people who disregard the commandments of God, which are the mitzvot, it's only because we violated the spirit of the law. Which means if we fulfill the spirit of the law, deductive reasoning says that we create a climate for regarding or adhering to God's mitzvot. Continuing on, it says, in other respects, I did not actually transgress for Bathsheba was legally legally divorced and Uriah was condemned to die because of insubordination against me, the king. Shabbat 56a from Talmud. Did you know when every Jewish soldier goes out to war, if he's married, he legally gives his wife a get because if he dies in battle for some reason, uh, there hasn't, there's not a way to, uh, you like for her to get the get from the husband. So he has to legally give her a contract of that. And so uh, so David's pointing that out like his Bathsheba had a get from Uriah because he went out to fight. Also, 
uh, I commanded Uriah to go home and he didn't. So like, that's a problem. However, the bigger problem obviously is violating the spirit of the law, looking lustfully upon a woman because Yeshua says, even if you look lustfully upon her, you've committed adultery. So obviously there's that because had David not looked at Bathsheba with that uh, look, you know, he wouldn't have gotten himself into all this other stuff. However, that needed to happen because through Bathsheba would come Shlomo, who would be the king, who would be the next link in the lineage to bring forth Mashiach. So obviously all things work together for the good, but it's a very interesting situation. So to go back to our verse, let all men be liars and let God be justified uh, and that he might be vindicated when he speak and we should overcome when we judge or when he judges that whole thing was about if David could be forgiven for uh, for his sin. And it says, so the wicked don't have an ability to say we can't repent. Okay, so, Sha so Shaul here in this uh, chapter three, verse four, is bringing down a really, really big concept that Though people have forsaken the ways of Torah and they were like observant, you know, like David was and stuff, and uh, they violate the Torah and all that, like even they can be forgiven. So Shaul is like, don't let people being disobedient and violating the law of God and all that kind of stuff. Don't let them be a stumbling block for you to keep you from being with Hashem and following the word of God and being in covenant with Hashem and all that kind of stuff, which is the crazy thing. Yeah, I'm going to end it right here because this is kind of a big point to stop on. But because the crazy thing that exists in the world today is that people don't want to be Jewish because of the stigma that is attached and connected to it. Like, no, these people, they wear black and white or no, they stink or no, they don't take baths. And sometimes their body odor is ridiculous and uh, they are just so isolated and off to themselves. And, you know, uh, this rabbi believes this, this rabbi believes that they're all fighting with each other. There's all this baseless hatred. And then on top of that, if I become a Jew, my family will disown me and all that kind of stuff. Well, I know the Messiah was Jewish, but, you know, that doesn't mean I need to be Jewish. And Messiah had many people following him. So it's like they couldn't have been all Jews. And even the people who were in the congregation at Corinth or any of these other congregations that the letters uh, of the writings of the apostles went to, not everybody converted. Some people just showed up and just hung out and had a good time. It's just kind of like, okay, so if you're letting all of that stop you from making true commitment and devotion to God, entering in conversion, being obedient to the word of God, upholding the spirit of the law, which will lead to upholding the letter of the law because it all flows together like that because the Torah is so legit. Then you need to just have a moment of stopping and just putting the whole picture together. Because if you look at David, David sinned and he said, I have sinned. It is my fault. It is not God's fault. It is not God's fault. And I'm now going to speak. It is not God's fault that the Jewish nation has failed in its mission. It's 
our fault. Whether we're Jewish or not, it's our fault that the mission has failed. So the the choice and the onus is up is upon us, which is why being a get you some, a Lapid Jew is like what the world needs right now. People who can go against the grain, go against the 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 tithe, not the tithe, like giving your money, because that would be terrible if you go against the tithe. But the tithe, like swimming upstream, basically, um, you know, people who can do that, people who can go. Yeah. So what? You don't think I'm a legit Jew? That doesn't mean I'm going to stop eating kosher. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop observing Shabbat. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop dressing Zanut. I'm going to keep upholding this Torah. I'm going to keep being joyful in my observance. I'm going to keep studying the Torah portions because every year as I go through the Torah portions and every year as I go through the festivals, guarantee you I'm going to get me some. Okay, you can tell me I'm not Jewish all day. You can tell me, is my mother Jewish? I'm going to tell you, yes, because I was born by the spirit of God, who is a female aspect of Hashem. The feminine aspect of Hashem is the spirit of God, is the Shekinah of God. And guess what? When the spirit of God and the Shekinah of God became flesh, it is Messiah Yeshua. And I consider myself a follower of Yeshua. And he is the one who empowers me and fills me via Hashem. So therefore, I have been born again. And so therefore, my mother is Jewish. So do we really want to have this conversation right now? Because if we're going to continue, then let's talk about Abraham for just a second, because Abraham didn't have a Jewish mother and he didn't grow up in a Jewish household. And he was in a household of like the like the the pinnacle of what it is to be an idolater. So if Abraham can come out of it and become the first Jew, then you guarantee you best to believe that I can come out of anything. I can come out of other faith systems and be a Jew because as Yochanan told the, the Pharisees and the leaders who came out to him at the mikvah of the Yarden River, the Jordan and the wilderness, because that's where his synagogue was. His synagogue was in the wilderness, just like the synagogue of Sar Shalom and Lapid Judaism, who are in exile from the community of uh, the Jewish faith as it is today and in the greater exile of all Jews from Eretz Israel, where the temple Bezrat Hashem will be built soon in our days. Our synagogues are in the wilderness because we don't have a home right now. And until the temple gets built and Mashiach returns, and we have a Sanhedrin. We don't have a home. So whether you live in Israel or not, you don't have a home. And the people who live in Israel aren't living there based off of Torah observance. They're living there based off of Halakha observance, which is the way in which to apply the Torah. So now the cart's before the horse. So do we really want to talk about that? But anyway, Yochanan told these people, John, the immerser, Yochanan, the mikvah person, the mikvist, he said, Hashem can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. I.e., Hashem can take an inanimate object like, you know, like a dead person, a dead corpse, someone who is dead in their faith, and he can make them into a Jew. Hashem can take an inanimate object and turn it into a circumcised of heart, turn it into a God praiser, turn it into a thankful to God type person who repudiates idolatry. And that is where we shall end the Agarit to the Romans. We have successfully made it to chapter three, verse four. So with the help of Hashem, next time we talk or throw down in the dojo, 
shall we say, or on the uh, gun range here uh, where we shoot missiles instead of rifles, uh, <laughs> we will pick up with the help of Hashem in verse five. Okay, so may we see the Mashiach soon in our days. May the gathering of the fullness of the nations be brought forth in our lifetimes. May Adonai make us worthy of the days of Mashiach and the life of the Alam Haba. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Baruch atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher natan lanu Torah temet. Vekayeo letokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai. Noten ha Torah. Amen.